So we uh, are facing crises all the time, and so these are to, to build our faith. My wife has heard me speak for 30 years, and she decided to take the stories and put them together in a book called Miracles in American History. And so they're from the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the Barbary Pirate War, and um, uh, kids love the stories because they all have a, a crisis and then a positive ending. A couple other books called uh, Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It goes through what was going on in Europe and the Pilgrim story coming up on the Thanksgiving. Uh, and another book called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present and how basically socialism is a bait and switch for dictatorship. And, um, but I'm not going to get into that. So we're going to talk about some of these miracles in American history. Uh, we have to remind ourselves that um, the king is the most common form of government on the planet, and as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger, and at the time of the revolution, the king of England had the biggest empire on planet Earth. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica. He was a globalist, one-world government guy. In America, we took the power of the king, we broke it into three branches, separated federal to state level, tied it up with ten handcuffs we call the first ten amendments. Really, all our constitution is is to take the power of a king and separate it. Take the Tower of Babel and scatter it, right? And... Um, so Chief Justice John Shea said, Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of choosing the forms of government under which they should live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. Your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourselves. If I were to pick one quote that sums up what makes America great, it's this one right here. Your lives, your liberty, and your property are at the disposal of you and your creator. So you get to decide what you want to do with your life and who you want to marry and what church you want to go to and what career you want to pursue. And you get to make all these decisions and then all of us together make the decisions for the country, right? It's bottom up versus the government ruling through mandates top down. Reagan said, in this country of ours took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. Here, for the first time in all the thousands of years of man's relation to man, the Founding Fathers established the idea that you and I had within ourselves the God-given right and ability to determine our own destiny. So, uh, so those are some of the quotes starting it off. Um, now, I have lots of stories from the Revolution and so forth, but we're going to jump into the War of 1812. So the British defeat Napoleon at the Battle of Trafalgar, and this leaves the British with the most powerful navy on planet Earth. And they decide to send some of their navy to Lake Erie. And they, uh, we have a president, James Madison. And he declares a day of prayer. And the date, notice, is September 9th of 1813. Render thanks, acknowledging our transgressions, which might provoke his divine displeasure, seeking his merciful forgiveness, precepts of our holy religion to do unto others as they would require that others should do to them. So we have the whole nation praying on September 9th. Well, what happened on September 10th is Oliver Hazard Perry, and he's 28 years old, and he, has, uh, he confronts the British squadron on Lake Erie. And uh, the, uh, uh, the British squadron have uh, some of my slide pictures didn't transfer but the British have long-range cannons and they're firing they just got done to 
defeating Napoleon at the Battle of Trafalgar. So these British are splintering Oliver Hazard Perry's flagship to pieces. And, um, uh, and so everybody expects him to surrender. Um, so there's the British firing on Oliver Hazard Perry's ship. And instead of surrendering, he gets on a boat and he goes to the second boat called the Niagara. And the wind changes directions. And the British ships are turning around, but they're too close to each other, and they turn and get their sails entangled. And all their ropes are a big mess, and they're trying to undo the ropes. And meanwhile, Oliver Hazard Perry sails his ship, uh, the Niagara, right past them all, and he, uh, he's just lighting every cannon. He's just, you know, boom, 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 boom. Uh, for 15 minutes, he sails past, and when the wind blows the, the smoke away, he had disabled the entire British squadron. And uh, he tells the men on deck, uh, the prayers of my wife have been answered, right? And, um, and then he writes to the Secretary of Navy, it has pleased the Almighty to give the arms of the United States a signal victory over their enemies on this lake. The British squadron, consisting of two ships, two brigs, one schooner, one sloop, have this moment surrendered to the force of my command after a sharp conflict. And so Madison writes, it has pleased the Almighty to bless our arms. On Lake Erie, the squadron under the command of Captain Perry, having met the British squadron of superior force, a sanguinary, which means bloody, conflict ended in the capture of the whole. And so this victory allowed America to take back Detroit and all the Northwest Territory that turned into seven states. And so this was an important battle. And... Um, so now, uh, that was one of the miracles in American history, this 28-year-old guy, right, with a, a, we didn't even have a port on Lake Erie. We had to build the ships on land and drag them out into the lake. So it was a real miracle victory. So meanwhile, Napoleon, he uh, abdicates the throne. He's exiled on the island of Alba, and... Um, so the British have their military. They're not fighting Napoleon. What are they doing? They send their military, and in 1814, they march into Washington, D.C. And our troops just run away. And James Madison is out on the field directing the troops, and Dolly Madison is in the White House, and they had cooked dinner and put the dinner on the table, and they're about ready to eat. And she sees everybody running out of town. And so she takes the pic painting of George Washington down off the mantle of the fireplace. They cut it out of the frame and she rolls it up. And she's riding out of town on a carriage. And the British come right in on her heels and they come up to the White House. They walk up the stairs and they see the table set with the food. They sit down, eat the food, and then they set the White House on fire <laughs> and burn it. And then the... Um, uh, British Admiral George Cockburn goes to the Capitol and he has his men sit in the chairs of our congressman and he goes to the podium and he says, who votes to burn the American Capitol? And they all say, I, and they burn our Capitol. And then they attack the Treasury and the Library of Congress and the Navy Yard and our Capitol's going up in flames. And, uh, but we had a nation that was praying and suddenly, dark clouds roll in. Wind and thunder grow to a frightening roar. And lightning and tornadoes begin striking at the British troops and blowing off roofs and chimneys. And um, cannons were actually lifted off the ground and dropped yards away. 
and violent winds slap horse and rider to the ground. So these British are riding on their horses, and all of a sudden the wind just knocks them flat. And um, the book Washington Weather recorded the British Admiral George Cockburn exclaiming to a lady, Great God, Madame, is this the kind of storm to which you are accustomed to in this infernal country? To which the lady replied, no, sir, this is a special interposition of providence to drive our enemies from our city. (laughs) Well, the uh, British are forced out. Torrential rains blow in and put out the fires. And the British have to march back to their ships over roads with downed trees, only to find that two of their ships were blown ashore and the rest of them had damaged riggings. And a British historian writes, more British soldiers were killed by this stroke of nature than from all the firearms the American troops had mustered in the feeble defense of their city. So this was the miracle, right? The, 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 The weather drives them out. And James Madison writes, the enemy, by a sudden incursion, has succeeded in invading the capital of the nation. During their possession, though for a single day only, they wantonly destroyed public edifices. Independence is now to be maintained with the strength and resources which heaven has blessed. And, uh, and then Madison goes on to do what? Declare a day of fasting. The two houses of the national legislature express that in the present time of public calamity and war, a day may be recommended to be observed by the people of the United States as a day of public humiliation and fasting and of prayer to Almighty God. Can you imagine the president declaring a day of fasting? And his blessings on their arms, a speedy restoration of peace, of confessing their sins and transgressions and strengthening their vows of repentance. I put together a book called Prayers and Presidents where I read through every single address by every single president, you know, up through George W. And, um, and I was amazed they not only had days of thanksgiving, but they had days of prayer, right? Truman had the National Day of Prayer, and Reagan made it the first Thursday in May. But they had days of fasting. And so Lincoln had two days of fasting during the Civil War. Um, Woodrow Wilson had a day of fasting during World War I. And, um, but they all talk about confessing their sins. And that's an, an interesting thing. And, um, and the idea is that um, if, we, if God just blesses us while we're still actively sinning, he would, in a sense, be saying that the sin doesn't really matter, and he would be giving uh, approval to the sin. Like in a wedding ceremony, if you're silent, you're giving your approval to the wedding vows, and so if there are sins and God's blessing you while you're in sin, he'd be giving approval to the sin. And so the founders understood that you needed to repent of your sin, and then God blesses you and so that's um, a couple stories. And then there's one I found that a lot of people don't know about, but it's a really interesting one. It's a guy named John Stewart. And so he uh, had a business. Um, he was a free black uh, from Virginia, and then he's coming to Ohio. And he uh, uh, is a dyer of clothes, like where you would dye blue jeans, right? You take the blue indigo dye and you make them... And so he's got his life savings, and he's traveling across Ohio, and he gets robbed and of his life savings. And he goes to the nearest town, and he decides he's going to drink himself to death. <laughs> and um, he's so depressed. And uh, so here's what it says. 
1796, John Stewart, a free black of mixed race, born in Powhatan County, Virginia. Young man, he uh, learned the blue dyeing trade and uh, traveling to Ohio with his family. He was robbed along the way. He made it as far as Marietta, Ohio, destitute, depressed. John Stewart decided to drink himself to death. The book, The Missionary Pioneer, John Stewart, Man of Color, says, um, published in 1827, it says, the loss of his property, the distance from his friends, the idea of poverty and disgrace, together with the wretched situation of his mind on account of his soul's affairs, brought him to the shocking determination that he would immediately take measures to hasten his disillusion, for which this purpose he forthwith commenced a course of excessive drinking in a public house. And this was continued until his nerves became much affected, his hands trembled, so it was difficult for him to feed himself. Stewart tried to straighten his life out, worked in the country making sugar, and uh, then another book called Moccasin Trails, History of the Mission to the Wyandotte Indians. It tells the story. Stewart returned to town where, contrary to the most solemn vows and promises which he had previously made to forsake sin and seek the Lord, an occurrence here took place which much alarmed Stewart. An intimate companion of his that he used to drink with was suddenly called from death to time uh, from time to eternity. With this individual, he had made an appointment to spend one more night in sin, but death interfered and disappointed them both. He goes on, Stuart began to despair of ever obtaining mercy. And so the book, John Stuart, Missionary Pioneer, says that on one day, while wandering along the banks of the Ohio, bewailing his wretched and undone condition, the arch enemy of souls suggested to him a remedy which was to terminate the miseries he endured by leaping into the deep and thereby putting an end to his existence to this suggestion he at first felt a disposition to yield but his attention was arrested by a voice which he thought called him by name and when looking around he could see no person whereupon he detested from the further prosecution of the desperate project. So he's about to jump in the river and drown to death, and he hears somebody say, John, and he looks around, and nobody's there. Well, it must have been the Lord. And, um, and so he's walking back, and he hears singing. It's a camp meeting revival. And he draws closer and closer, and, um, and it says, as he walked out one evening, he heard the sound of singing and praying proceeding from a house no great distance, proved to be a Methodist prayer meeting revival. His prejudices at first forbade him going in, but curiosity prompted him to venture a little nearer. And at length, he resolved to enter and make his case known, which he did. Then it was the Lord was pleased to reveal his mercy and pardoning love to his fainting soul, causing him to burst forth in unspeakable joy, declaring what the Lord had done for his poor soul. And so this is during the Second Great Awakening Revival. So these are revivals that took place in the early 1800s, and they would have them in the countryside. And uh, they would put up tents, and people would come from all these different states, and they would camp out and then go hear preachers. And some of them would have like 20,000 people. And uh, they didn't have microphones. And so you would be with... Uh, hear one guy preaching, but then you'd work, walk a little further, and there'd be another stand with another guy preaching, and you walk a little further, and there'd be another guy, right? you get out of the earshot of one and ear, into the earshot of the other, and people would write the reports that some would be uh, on their knees praying, but then you get to the ne next group, and they'd be on their you know, lifting their hands rejoicing, and you get to another group, and, and this is all happening simultaneously. 
Anyway, so it says, soon after this, he attended a camp meeting, wherewith he remained for some time with a heavy heart, at length resolved by taking a place among the mourners of the assembly, where he lay deploring his case all night, even until the break of day, at which time the son of righteousness broke into his dark, bewildered soul. And so he heard a sound, which much alarmed him, and a voice, as he thought, said to him, Thou shalt declare my counsel faithfully. At the same time, a view seemed to open to him in a northwest direction. And a strong impression was made on his mind that he must go out that course into the world and declare the counsel of God. So he just starts walking. He just starts walking northwest. And he's like crossing creeks and going up hills and down hills and crossing fields. He set out without credentials, direction of the way, money or bread, crossed the Muscogum River for the first time, traveled in the northwest course, not knowing whither he went. And uh, he was frequently informed that it would lead him to the Indian country on the Sandusky River. Sometimes with, sometimes without a road, sometimes wading the waters and swimming the rivers. And then in the book, uh, Past and Present, Wyandotte County, it says that Pipetown was a considerable body of Delaware Indians. At this place, Stewart stopped. But as the Indians were preparing for a great dance, they paid but little attention to him. Stewart took out his hymn book and began to sing. He, as is usual with many of his race, had a most melodious voice. As a result of his effort, the Indians present were charmed and awed into perfect silence. So here he is showing up. They're about to do their Indian dance, and they're ignoring him, and he starts singing, you know, amazing grace. And um, so uh, when he ceased, Johnny Cake, one of the Indians, said in broken English, sing more. <laughs> and then he asked if there was any person who could interpret it. It says, old lions who called himself 160 years old, for he counted the summer a year and the winter a year, came forward. Stuart talked to them. John Stuart made it to the tribe of the Wyandots, and the French called them Huron. And they had previously had treaties with the French during the French and Indian War, and they were driven out of New York, and then they were driven out, and they uh, made their way to like Detroit, and, um, and then they, they were driven out some more after the War of 1812. And um, so Stuart convinced him that he had come to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the children of the forest. And Stuart reached the home of the Indian William Walker Sr., who believed Stuart to be a runaway slave. Realizing Stuart could not speak Wyandotte, William Walker sent him to Jonathan Pointer, a black man who in his youth had been kidnapped by the Wyandots and adopted into their tribe, and he spoke Wyandotte. Pointer interpreted for Stuart, but not wanting his friends to think he believed, he ended each talk with the words, these are his words and not mine, or that's what the preacher says, but I don't believe it. <laughs> Could you imagine having an interpreter, you know, and says, I don't believe anything he's telling you. And um, then the pointer con- translator eventually converted. And one of John Stewart's first Wyandotte converts was chief between the logs, and who years before, in a drunken fit, killed his wife, only to wake up in horror the next day to realize what he had done. And, um, and so... Uh, Chief Between Logs said, um, then there was war between our fathers and the president and the King George, and by the time the war was over, we were all scattered and many killed and died. Our chiefs thought to get the nation together again. Then the black man, Stuart, our brother, pointing at Stuart, came to us and told us he was sent by the great spirit to tell us the true and good way. But we thought he was like all the rest, that he 
too, wanted to cheat us and get our money and land from us. We treated him ill and gave him little to eat and trampled on him, and we were jealous of him for a whole year. Then we attended his meeting in the council house, but we could find no fault with him. He told us of our sins and that the drinking was ruining us and that the Great Spirit was angry with us, and he said we must leave these things. The Great Spirit came upon us so that all cried aloud. Some clapped their hands, some ran away, and some were angry. We held our meeting all night, sometimes singing, sometimes praying. But now we were convinced that God had sent him to us. Stuart is a good man. Eventually, the entire Wyandotte tribe converted and became Christian. And then you had the, uh, he dies in 1823. His last words were, be faithful. And then you had the, the federal government push through the Indian Removal Act. And some Indians went right away, and some of them, like the Cherokee, didn't believe that the federal government would actually drive them out of their land. And so those were the Cherokee, and they had the Trail of Tears down in, you know, to Oklahoma. But anyway, so the Wyandotte decided they were going to move, and they bought some land on, or they were able to negotiate and get some land on the Missouri River. And they traveled out there, and they... Uh, called it Wyandotte City in Wyandotte County. And later, the name of the city was changed to Kansas City. But Kansas City is still in Wyandotte County. And so basically, Kansas City was founded by the Wyandotte Christian Indians that were brought to faith by this black man, John Stewart, who was uh, robbed of all of his... uh, Money and he was going to drink himself to death, uh, but he went to a camp meeting revival and uh, uh, in Ohio and he heard the gospel, got saved, and then he evangelized this Wyandotte Indian tribe and it turned into the Kansas City. So, um, just a, a story of how God can take one person in a despairing, terrible situation and use him to change the lives of thousands. And um, anyway. Um, another story from uh, World War I, and the president's Woodrow Wilson, and he gives an order. The president commands in the chief of the army and navy and joins observance of the Sabbath, the importance of man and beast for the prescribed weekly rest, sacred rights of Christian soldiers, and best sentiment of a Christian people demand that Sunday labor in the army and navy be reduced to the measure of strict necessity. He has a day of fasting. And uh, he passes out New Testaments and Book of Psalms to all the soldiers. And so Woodrow Wilson writes a uh, foreword to the New Testament. And then General Pershing writes a foreword to it. And then during World War I, you had uh, one story where the American battalion was pinned down by machine gun fire uh, along the Decauville rail line north of Chateau Charest, France. And Sergeant Alvin York writes, The Germans got us. They stopped us dead in our tracks. Their machine guns were up there on the heights overlooking us and well hidden. We couldn't tell for certain where the terrible heavy fire was coming from. Those machine guns were spitting fire, cutting down the undergrowth around me. All but eight of Sergeant York's group were killed. But Sergeant York took out 32 German machine guns and killed 28 of the enemy. And uh, he was from the Kentucky backwoods. 
and uh, he was a good shooter. And um, so he tells the story that uh, some of them officers been saying that I being a mountain boy accustomed to the woods done all these things right just by instinct. I hadn't never got much learning from books except the Bible. Maybe by instincts are more natural, but that ain't enough to account for the way I come out alive with all those Germans raining down death on me. And so he um, uh, would be picking off the Germans and uh, then they weren't sticking their head up and so he would make a turkey call. Gobble, gobble, gobble. And the guy would stick his head up, boom, he'd shoot him in the head. He was so good. And, and then he said, I could shoot better standing up. And so he just stood there and he'd be gobble, gobble, shoot. <laughs> and then he was charged from behind. And he had a, a, a pistol with six shots in it, but there were six guys charging. And he says, I shot him the way you shoot turkey. You shoot the furthest away one first. Because if you shoot the closest one, the other ones will see it, and they'll scatter, and you'll never get them. And then he turns back, and he's shooting the others. And um, later, people were questioning, did he really do that? So somebody went over to that spot with their metal detector, and they found this one circle with all these spent shells all around it. Right? And, um, but he says, I'm telling you, the hand of God must have been in that fight. Just think of them, 30 machine guns, rain and fire on me, point-blank range from only 25 yards. And then all of them there, rifles and pistols besides those bombs. And then those men charged me with fixed bayonets, and I never receiving a scratch, and bringing back 132 prisoners. I've only got one explanation, that God must have heard my prayers. Right, so after that, all of a sudden, this little white flag comes up on a stick, <laughs> and these Germans march down, 132 of them, and he makes them throw their guns away, and, and the German commander says, uh, how many of you are there? And it's like him and maybe one other guy that crawled out of the bush. And, um, and so he's marching them down the road, and they're not about to run away because they know he can pick them off. <laughs> And so he gets the Congressional Medal. He comes back to America, and he starts a Bible school, the Sergeant York Bible School. And um, Gary Cooper did a movie about Sergeant Alvin York. And um, so just an amazing story, right, of you being in a, somebody being in a situation with them trying to kill, kill him, but he just trusted in the Lord. And, um, and then you got Eddie Rickenbacker. He was in World War I, and then during World War II... He was um, sent to the Pacific and um, was shipwrecked in the ocean for 28 days. And, and he talks about how somebody had a pocket New Testament and they would read the, the New Testament. And then like a, uh, a, a rain shower was happening over there and the pictures didn't show up. But um, uh, they pray and then the rain starts moving right over their little lifeboats. And then they don't have any food and they pray and a seagull landed on his head. And he like reaches up and he like grabs it and then they, they kill it and then um, they, they eat, eat it sort of raw. But, but then he uh, takes the innards and somebody's got a key ring and, a, and they, they cat, use it to catch fish. And, and um, just a, he wrote a book called Seven Came Through. And um, so, uh, and then we have World War II and the Nazis take over Paris and um, uh, we have Winston Churchill and then t- Franklin Roosevelt. Preservation of these rights is vitally important now, not only to us who enjoy them, but to the whole future of Christian civilization. And, and he talks about fighting the Nazis. And so one of the stories, uh, there's Pearl Harbor, and, um, and then the, the, they take over the Philippines, and they have the Bataan Death March, and um, Kennedy sh- got shipwrecked. And, um, 
But then you have, um, I'm, I'm going to get to one story here, of uh, Europe. And so you have a uh, Battle of Midway, which I'm not going to talk about, but it's a really great victory. And, um, and MacArthur goes back to the Philippines. And now we got D-Day. So the Americans land, and they're pushing the Nazis back across Europe. And if you were to uh, look at a map of Europe, you would see the... Um, and, and he, Pat, Franklin Roosevelt passes out Gideon's New Testaments to all the soldiers, too. And uh, as commander-in-chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces. And um, so, uh, so there's a line across Europe, and we're pushing the Nazis back, but then they want to get back to Antwerp, Holland to get oil, because uh, it's a port, and they're making a bulge in the line, right? So they call it the Battle of the Bulge, but it's the bulge in the line. And um, anyway, so uh, Eisenhower, by rushing out from his fixed defenses, the enemy may give us the chance to turn his great gamble into his worst defeat. So I call upon all the men, uh, the allies, to rise in new heights of courage with unshakable faith in the cause for which we fight. We will, with God's help, go forward to our greatest victory. And so we drop the 101st Airborne down, but the Nazis have already gone past them, so they're actually all behind lines. And they're in a little town called Baston, Eight roads go through this area, um, like in Belgium and the Netherlands, and, but it's a critical area that the Nazis want to get control of so they can get to Antropolin, so they can get gas, because they're running out of gas. Well, the Nazis bring a message to the American general, Anthony McAuliffe, and they tell him, you're surrounded, surrender. And Anthony McAuliffe gave a one-word answer, nuts. <laughs> And so that, that was his answer. And so you can just imagine the, the German messenger coming back to the general. Well, what does this American say? Do they surrender? He said, nuts. So, hmm, what does that mean? And uh, so meanwhile, coming to the rescue is Patton with a third army. But his troops are pinned down by snow and wet rain and clouds. And so he has his chaplain, James O'Neill, compose a prayer. And they print the prayer on a quarter of a million index cards, and they pass it out to all the soldiers. And every one of them prays the prayer. And, um, and the, the flip side of the prayer had his Christmas greeting. But it says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate reigns. Hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee. Establish thy justice among men and nations. And um, the next day, guess what? The sky clears. The planes can fly and give them cover. The third army can march. They come to the rescue of the soldiers at Bastan, and the Nazis cannot get gas, and they run out of gas. And uh, the not I talked to a guy years ago who had been at the Battle of the Bulge. He goes, the tanks were like just on the other side of that field, and they were coming toward us. And then all of a sudden, you could hear the engines run out of gas. They go, Rrunk. and then the lid would open, clunk, clunk. And the guy would scurry out, right? And he'd just run away. And they'd just leave all these tanks just sitting there because they ran out of gas. And, um, and so then they pushed the Nazis back. And two months later, the war was over. And, um, and then one last one, uh, Apollo 13, uh, has an oxygen tank explode. And uh, Houston, we've had a problem. <laughs> and um, the, uh, the president is Nixon, and he has a day of prayer. And um, for the astronauts. And so they're praying all around the world. The Vatican, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and the whole country's praying. And here's a church, and you can see the, the sign there. It says, today, special prayer for Apollo 13. And, um, 
And so they piece together an oxygen filter. They take the electric charge out of the lunar landing module and put it back into the main thing. And then they're able to manually steer this because I guess the computers weren't working. And they landed just close to a hurricane and they all survived. And so they have a prayer on deck. And Nixon says, when we learned of the safe return of our astronauts, I asked the nation to observe a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. This event reminds us that in these days of growing materialism, deep down there is still a great religious faith in this nation. I think more people prayed last week than have prayed many years in this country. We pray for God's assistance when faced with great potential tragedy. So there they are praying on deck. And then you can see, here's them praying on deck. And the, and the camera is them praying on deck. And then them praying at Houston in the control center. And then here's the cover of Time magazine. And they're down there praying. And what does it say at the bottom? Astronauts praying after splashdown. And uh, they have a coin of the the prayer. Uh, Apollo 14 left a microfilm copy of the King James Bible on the moon. And so every one of those little squares is a page of the King James Bible. And um, and then uh, Apollo 15, you had astronaut James Irwin. And he said, being on the moon had a profound spiritual impact on my life. I spoke at the Sarasota, Florida 50th anniversary mayor's prayer breakfast, and there was the wife of James Irwin and the daughter of James Irwin, and um, I got a chance to visit with them, and, uh, and they said how he ended up becoming like an evangelical preacher after he got back. And before I entered space with the Apollo 15 mission, 1971, I was a silent Christian, But I feel the Lord sent me to the moon so I could return to the earth and share his son, Jesus Christ. And so he left a Bible on the dash of the lunar rover. And the daughter's like pointing out. And she says, if you look really close, you see the little black square. And and that's the Bible that he left up there. And, um, And so I love this quote, James Irwin, Apollo 15. Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. And... um, Anyway, so in, in closing, I um, uh, have a way of presenting the gospel that sort of ties into this. I shared it with the men, but um, the thought is, why did God make us? And in 2013, they focused the powerful Hubble telescope on a spot in the sky where there was nothing. Tiny spot, size of a grain of sand, held at arm's length against the night sky. Nothing there. After 11 days, they developed the images. In that tiny spot was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. This is the picture, the Hubble Ultra Deep Space Field. This is the furthest picture ever taken away from planet Earth. This is not an artist's rendition. And every dot you see is a galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars. And now with the James Webb Telescope, they can see it even clearer. And you can see the red shift, so light travels in waves, with blue being the shortest, fastest wave, and red being the slowest, longest wave. So when you see the red, that's galaxies moving away from us. And they now estimate that the observable universe is 93 billion light years across and still expanding at the speed of light. And the largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It's so large, if you were to place Stevenson 2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that enormous? And God made it all, and he made you. Why would he make you? What could you possibly offer a being that is that powerful? Nothing except maybe something 
What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks, molten rocks. A rock cannot love you. So it's almost like sometime in eternity past, God said, been there, done that. I can make everything. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. So in the context of everything God controls, time, matter, space, energy, he intentionally created one tiny thing he does not control, your will. Now, he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made us different than everything else. And he doesn't need our love. He's not incomplete in our love, somehow completes him. He doesn't need our love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back, but he will never force you. Because the moment he would force you to love him, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him, and he would know your response is not a love response. And you think of it, you're made in God's image. What's the most important thing in your life? Well, somewhere near the top of the list, it's loving and being loved. Now, God loves everything he created. But the question is, could what he created love him back? Galaxies can't love. Rocks can't love. Inanimate objects. Animals follow instinct. I looked up the word angel in the King James Bible. It appears 289 times. Not one time is the word love used to describe an angel's relationship with God. They worship God, they praise God, they glorify God. The word angel means messenger. They deliver God's messages to the prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Mary. They deliver God's judgments, like in Egypt, and, and they uh, are heavenly witnesses. Jesus says, I'll confess you before the angels. They rejoice when a sinner converts. Uh, they sang when God made the stars. But they are, they are mighty beings. They are incomprehensibly intelligent beings. But they are not made in God's image, and Jesus did not die on the cross for angels. They were made for a purpose. What purpose were you made for? We're not mighty, and we're not very smart. <laughs> you know, a king can have a castle with really powerful soldiers and really smart staff, and then he can have children. You know, you look up the word Love, it is used all throughout the Bible to describe men and women's relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Psalms 91, because he said his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Jesus rose from the dead and said, Peter, do you love me? We are beings created with the ability to love God back. But for love to be loved, it must be voluntary. He won't force us, because the moment he would force us, he would know he's forcing us, and he would know a response is not a love response. There's a second thing. How can God give us the free will to love him back, but still be in control of everything? God created light. Light is a photon, which is a perpendicular wave in the electromagnetic field that travels at 186,000 miles per second. <laughs> And visible light is one small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. You have ultraviolet rays and gamma rays and infrared rays. And, and so when God said, let there be light, 
he stretched out not just the heavens, but the electromagnetic field so that light could travel. And Einstein's theory of relativity is the closer you could travel approaching the speed of light, for you, time would slow down. And if you could travel the speed of light, for you, time would stand still. God created light. He's faster than light. So for God, time stands still. We'll never comprehend that. But there is a verse in the Bible that says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Could you imagine experiencing one day as if it was a thousand years? In other words, we are living in slow motion compared to God. All right, we're just like, oh, we're like trees. We're like moving so slow. Why is this important? Because we get to make our little free will decisions in time, but God's outside of time. He can readjust every electron in the universe so that his will is going to take place. So it's our limited free will inside the context of his unlimited sovereign will. So I was thinking of a way of explaining it. You have GPS on your phone, you make a wrong turn, it recalculates. What if the guy in the car next to you is making a wrong turn at the same time and his is recalculating? What if everybody in the city is making wrong turns and it's all recalculated? What if everybody in the world, right? So we make good decisions. We make bad decisions. God's outside of time. He can readjust every electron in the universe before time moves forward in the next nano frame so that his will is going to take place. And he has a will for us. We are his workmanship created to do the good works. But if we don't want to step out in faith or we have some reason, there's a 30, 60, and 100 fold, right? There's those, the, the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. So some people can, can well, you know, and then if you, you miss it, you can say, God, redeem this, and he can, he can readjust it and give you another chance. And then you have Mordecai going to Esther and saying, uh, there's a mandate to kill the Jews. If you don't rise up, God will raise somebody else up to deliver the Jews. So he's going to get his will done. And so, um, so we get to make our little free will decisions, but since he's outside of time, he is in control of everything. And uh, so he creates us as free will beings that can love him back. He creates time so that we have our free will, but he's still in control of everything. There's a third thing. He has to hide himself behind his creation because if he ever revealed himself to you, in all of his universe creating omnipotent power brighter than a trillion trillion suns your response if you didn't melt would be like the apostle john in the book of revelation i fell at his feet as dead it would be instantaneous and an involuntary response in the presence of all power and all beauty and all love it'd be an involuntary response and god's like i can do involuntary all eternity long he is completely awesome But he said, I'm interested in this voluntary response. And so he has to hide himself. People say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he shows himself, your free will's gone. And the same hiding of himself that allows us to have a free will necessitates that we have faith. I was thinking of a way of explaining it, how God hiding of himself so that we can have our love response to him. Imagine a billionaire has a son who goes to college and he flies in on his private jet drives up in his lamborghini he's got a rolex watch gold rings fancy clothes he's going to have every girl on campus wanting to meet him but if he lays that aside and drives up in a clunker 
He's got holes in his jeans. All the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library. And they eat together in the cafeteria. And they become friends. And she takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then one day he says, hey, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this castle mansion, this state. And the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. If Jesus would have come in his glory, every political ladder climber, oh, I'm your friend. No, he was born in a manger. It says in Isaiah 53 of the Messiah, there was nothing in his countenance that would make us want to desire him. He only wants those that love him for him. So God creates us as free will beings, creates time so he's still in control, hides himself so that we can use our free will. But there's one last thing. He's just, and he cannot help it. He's just. He is a God of laws. Laws of planetary motion, laws of physics, laws of opposites, laws of gravity. Everything's laws, and he has laws for human behavior, which we call being just. We just have the choice as to whether or not we're going to follow the laws, but he is a God of laws. So God is just, which means he has to judge every sin. In mathematical equations, you have constants and variables. The constant in the equation of redemption is God is just, was, is, and forever will be just. The variable is who takes the judgment, you or a substitute. (laughs) God has to judge every sin. Because if he doesn't judge a sin, by default, his silence would be giving consent to the sin. Like in a wedding ceremony, if you're silent, you're giving consent. And if God gives consent to one sin, one time, he denies his just nature. He denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. And he is not going to get kicked out of heaven. And he is not going to deny himself. And he is going to judge every sin. So he could never be loved back. Because if he creates free will beings that can love him, if he creates time so he's still in control, if he hides himself so that we can use our free will, but if we step out of line one time, he has to judge us. Because if he doesn't judge our sin, he's giving consent to the sin. If he gives consent to sin, he's denying himself, and he cannot deny himself, so he could never be loved back. Until he came up with a plan. He actually had the plan before he created the first electron. And the plan was his own son would become man, and only as a man could God die on a cross to take the judgment for all of our sins. Charles Wesley said, Amazing love, how could it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So God is just in that he judges every sin, but he's love and that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. So Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah, and Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice, we have the coals for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it has a double meaning. I'm trusting God will have the ram up in the bush, but the other is God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It was a hidden plan. It says if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. The Apostle Paul called the mystery of the gospel. In this hidden plan, Jesus, the Son of God, became man, and he took the wrath of a just God upon himself in our place. 
And you think, okay, God's just. There's one Jesus. There's billions of us. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal damnation. How can that balance one versus billions? Jesus is divine. And he experienced judgment in a dimension we will never comprehend. It says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. You know, I've read the book of Revelation lots and lots of times, still trying to figure it out. But one thing seems clear. It's God that is pouring out the vials of judgment in the book of Revelation. Lamb breaks the seal. Angel throws the center. Angel blows the trumpet. It's like, why is it? This is the final judgment. God is a just God. He has to judge every sin he missed along the way. So you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there was a sin back then, and you didn't judge it, and you were silent. Were you, were you giving consent to that sin? Is there a party that's unjust we didn't know about? Uh-uh. It says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question for the rest of eternity that God judged sin. But that's the final judgment. He won't do any more judging for the rest of eternity. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. Jesus took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross, experienced it as if it was a thousand years. You know, I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. I'm not as smart as Matt. But, uh, <laughs> but you take an eternal being, Jesus, who is innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time, it's equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. An unlimited being, suffering for a limited period of time, is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places. He is the only one who could have done it. And out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, he became the Lamb. He took the wrath of judgment upon himself in our place. And then he rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. This way, you and I can approach this universe-creating, omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-just God without having to worry about being judged. Because all the judgment you deserve went on Christ. And you are approaching God through Christ. He is the door. He is the way. He is the, the blood of the Lamb is shed. We're covered with the blood. We have his name written on our forehead, right? We're in Christ. The Lamb is God's way to love you without having to judge you. It's his plan. He came up with it. Before the foundations of the world, he came up with it. That he can love you for the rest of eternity. You can love him back for the rest of eternity. And you not have to worry about being judged by him. Because all the judgment you deserve went on Christ. And you are in Christ. And then he fills you with the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit reaches out through you to share the love of God to a lost and dying world. Clothe the naked, feed the hungry, rescue those unjustly sentenced to death, right? So instead of you doing good works, hoping to earn brownie points with God, 
you're already accepted by God through faith in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is doing the good works through you. And his yoke is easy and his burden's light. And there's nothing more exciting than letting the God of the universe love people and work through you to have his righteousness and kingdom established on earth. So, tonight, today, the God that controls every electron arranged it for you to be here right now at this moment so that you could hear about his infinite love for you and how he made a way for you to come into his presence and not have to worry about being judged because all the judgment you deserve went on to Jesus and you approach him through Jesus. So let's end with a prayer and I'm going to ask Scott to come on up and let's bow our heads and um, you can just say this prayer quietly under your breath. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for creating the universe I thank you for creating me out of nothing. Thank you for loving me. I have sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I deserve judgment. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross and take the judgment I deserve upon himself. Jesus, I thank you that you gave your life and shed your blood You died and you rose from the dead, and I am risen with you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, live in me. Love people through me. Let the Father's will be done through me here on earth. In Jesus' name. Joy and for the joy of those in your lives. You're dismissed.